But for now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1.10 I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that this morning as we spend just a few moments giving our full attention to this wonderful passage and to Your cross, the cross of Your Son, Jesus Christ. That You would expose to us the ways that we have embraced the wisdom of the world. That You would show us areas 
in which we've been prone to boast in our own glory. And that You would show us that our identity as believers, first and foremost, is in Christ because of His cross. And Lord, I pray that You would use these truths to draw us together as one people. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a critical difference, isn't there, between identifying a symptom, diagnosing its root cause, and prescribing treatment. Have you found that to be the case? In Mineral Wells, for the last month or so, we've been struggling with this. I'm sure you probably have as well here in Young County. Uh, we've dealt with a lot of sickness in our family, in our church family, in the kids' school, uh, and it's been hard to identify why that is. What exactly are we suffering from? I actually went to the doctor a few weeks ago, something I never do, because I had struggled for several weeks. I thought probably I had a cold, maybe that turned into an infection, I need some antibiotics, and in talking with the doctor, he was not so sure. He seemed to think that... Uh, Allergens had been worse this year than most years. Perhaps my allergies were particularly bad. I still don't know for sure, and I'm still struggling with these things, so I guess he probably was right. But to identify what was causing those symptoms, uh, to identify the symptoms was one thing. To identify what was causing them was another thing entirely. Of course, the stakes in this case are pretty low. Discomfort, trouble breathing, difficulty sleeping, no big deal. Sometimes the stakes are far higher. A relative of mine, when she was a young child, began to complain that her stomach hurt. Kids do that sometimes. Mom and dad kept her home from school, made sure she knew what to do if she felt like she might lose her lunch, you know, that sort of thing. But then the pain grew worse. She went to the doctor. The doctor told her, hey, it's nothing to worry about. Just go home and ride it out. She went home. The pain persisted got even worse. Her parents took her to the emergency room the next day. The ER doctor concluded, it's no big deal. She's just a kid. She's got a stomach complaint. Go home and ride it out. She went home. The pain got worse. Finally, she was in such pain that her parents brought her back to the hospital and demanded a more detailed examination. Upon further analysis, they learned that not only did she have appendicitis, but her appendix had, in fact, burst. They operated. She survived. She's fine now. But it was really, really close. There's a big difference between noticing a symptom and accurately dealing with its root cause. And of course, as I'm sure you know, the same is true in the church of Jesus Christ. The believers in first century Corinth experienced this. They had problems. That some of them, they were even willing to talk about and ask for help. They had written to the Apostle Paul, the man who had spent so much time with them in establishing their tiny church. Other problems they faced, they were either unaware of or unwilling to discuss because they were so embarrassing and so deeply ingrained in the culture of the church. So Paul had to find out about these issues through the grapevine. And it's one of these issues that Paul discusses here in this first major section of his first canonical letter to the church in Corinth. 
You may have noticed if you've studied this book that it is written not only to the church in Corinth, but to all believers who in all places call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul is going to do is deal with situations that that exist in the city and in the church at Corinth that he believes actually impact Many other types of churches, including Redeemer Church in Graham. All the other stuff that Corinth was dealing with, he tells them, I'll deal with that when I come. I'm planning to visit you and we'll deal with that in person. But this problem is a problem that all believers face. This issue that he brings up here in this first chapter is such a common complaint. That Paul, like an experienced surgeon at a teaching hospital, he brings the patient into the operating theater and he turns on the spotlight and he sort of sets the church of Corinth under those lights as a test case. And what the Corinthian church is, uh, church is facing, you are going to face. And it's like Paul in this passage takes us through a three-step process. That's the process we're going to follow today. First, he's going to identify the patient's symptom. Then he's going to give us a powerful solution. And then finally, we'll see a plain strategy. Notice with me, first first of all, uh, the patient's symptom. The patient's symptom. Actually, he comes right out with it in verse 11. He says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Quarreling. Fighting factions, divisions in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he talking about? Well, you may know that Paul and the church in Corinth have had a long relationship. Paul had spent 18 months there planning a new church according to the book of Acts. He had moved on to other places, but they had kept up this correspondence with one another. But they hadn't brought up the fact that they were experiencing divisions. Paul had to learn about that from someone else. He has to hear about it from Chloe's people. The Corinthian church has divided up into factions and alliances. It's kind of like it had become a sort of reality TV show, you know, Survivor Corinth edition. There were the Paul people and the Apollos people and the Peter people. Cephas is just another nickname for Peter. It's a different language. There was a group that pulled back from everybody and said, we're the Christ people, unlike all of you. Well, that's an obscure problem. Nothing like that happens today, right? No, it happens all the time, doesn't it? Many of our churches are like the House of Representatives. We all meet in the same room, but we're not all on the same page. You have the Hymn Lovers Caucus and the Modern Worship Music Coalition, the MacArthur Gang, the Piper Gang. Uh, you've got the intellectual types, the practical types, the sentimental, emotional types. You've got the ones who hang on to Pastor Ryan's every word and the ones who are still saying, we'll see. And then, as if above the fray, you've got people who are saying, well, unlike all of you, I just, I believe the Bible. Of course, diversities of gifts and Christian experience and ministry emphasis and circumstances are all wonderful. It's okay to have that diversity. It's good to have that diversity. But then they become a measuring stick that we use to size up other believers. They start to fill our vision. What starts out as a matter of personal conscience becomes a means of public condemnation of other believers. Cracks appear 
and begin to widen in the body of Christ. I really don't know where those cracks might form in this particular congregation. But I do know that this is an issue that this congregation will face. We carve out these niches for ourselves and we kind of climb into that niche and look out at everybody else and judge them because they're not there with us. They're less godly, even right now. I bet you can probably think, you're thinking right now about this passage and you're thinking, you know, I hope so-and-so is hearing this sermon and so-and-so is someone other than you. This is what we do. And Paul just asks a simple question. Is Christ divided? How many Jesuses are there? That's an important question because throughout this letter, this is what he's doing in the first letter to the Corinthians. He's painting a picture of the church at Corinth and every local church as a temple to Christ, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, situated in the city of man. And he says, if you are going to be the dwelling place of the one Jesus Christ, the the Spirit of Christ, then how many partitions, how many divisions ought that temple to have? Shouldn't it be one temple? When the local church has quarreling, fighting, factions, divisions, it's not okay. That does not reflect the Christ whose temple we are supposed to be. Have you ever had something uh, happen with your health and you've just been living with it and, and a friend has to come along and say, you know, that's not normal. It's not normal for you to experience extreme chest pain all of the time. It's not normal for your toe to look like that. You should go get that checked out. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying it's not normal for the church to have factions. That means you're not healthy. That means there's something wrong. Your body has a very serious disease. And it's time to seek treatment. But it's important that we not stop there. That's the symptom. I, Excuse me, I suspect... <coughs> that you have at one time or another uh, felt the need to seek unity. You've felt the need to move past quarreling and fighting, to be on the same page. But I've learned that many Christians and even many churches rush from the problem to a counterfeit solution without reading on in the text. Now, I just want to observe that there are several things that we might be tempted to say is the solution, and Paul doesn't say that that's the solution. For example, uh, let me just... Just to be really practical today, Paul doesn't say, for example, that the reason we're quarreling is because we all need to align with the truth. Did you see that? He doesn't go there. This is how many believers think. We think, well, the reason that we have disunity in the church and divisions and factions is because not everyone in this church believes the truth like I do. Uniformity, in other words. And friend, if you're expecting that, then you're just a ticking time bomb. You will not last at this church. You will not last in any church because no church is going to have all the believers agree on every last thing. Paul doesn't say there's quarreling divisions in the church. Therefore, everybody needs to learn what the truth is and just agree about every last thing. That's not going to happen. The other problem with this is that quarreling is not always about what we believe. We quarrel for all kinds of reasons. Remember how Paul uh, had to call out the young ladies in the church in Philippi? He calls them out by name. He says, Euodia, Syntyche, you're my co-laborers in the Lord. I love you. You're great. And it's time to get along. 
The issue wasn't that they disagreed. The issue was something else. They needed to have unity in the Lord. So the, Paul doesn't advise the Corinthians to uh, just agree about everything. Paul doesn't say that quarreling Christians need to just agree uh, about everything, but he doesn't encourage them to set aside doctrine either. This is what many Christians say. Hey, it, we need to have unity in this church, so therefore let's take solid teaching, sound gospel doctrine, and just set it over to the side. And Paul never says to do that. He doesn't say that in order for you to achieve unity, we, we need to have a sort of balance of power between the different parties in the church. We'll make sure that we have two hymns and two modern worship songs in every worship service, so that way everybody's happy, you know? That's not what he says to do. He doesn't tell the Corinthians to sort of live and let live. You know, I sit over here on this side of the sanctuary, and she sits over here on that side of the sanctuary, and as long as, long as I leave from that door, and she leaves from that door, and we don't cross paths in the hallway on the way out the door, then we're okay. That's not what Paul is after. He wants to go deeper. What's the problem with all those solutions? They merely address the symptom. They don't go after the root cause. And Paul wants to go after the root cause. So notice with me not only the patient's symptom, but secondly, a powerful solution. A powerful solution. Look at verse 17. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the way that Paul reasons in 1 Corinthians. He never says, here's the problem, here's what you've been doing wrong, therefore just start doing it the right way. No, he says, here's the problem, here's some gospel truth that you need to know, now let's look at the problem in light of that gospel truth. So Paul moves from the problem, the symptom, you've got disunity and, and fighting and quarreling in your church. Now let's look at some gospel truth that will help you reorient to the problem and you'll have a, a chance to address it in a gospel way. What is the solution? It's a simple, powerful cure. And, and really, this is the central idea of the entire passage. What is it that quarreling Christians need? Quarreling Christians need the cross. Quarreling Christians need the cross. When we're fighting, when we have division in the church, when we have factions in the church, what do we primarily need? We need to go back to the cross. And he develops this idea. In other words, if we can all agree that it's not good enough for the church to have quarreling and disunity, that's not enough. It's a start, but it's just a symptom. We've got to get deeper. The real solution is for Paul to point us to the cross. But wait a second. What does the cross have to do with quarreling in the church? I mean, the cross, that sounds like a wonderful option for a Sunday school answer, doesn't it? You know, if you're not sure what the answer is, that's probably on the short list of things that you could say you might get the answer right. But in all reality, what does the cross have to do with the problem of quarreling in the church? Actually, as Paul is going to show us, it, it, 
the cross addresses a great many things, but there are three realities in particular that, that change the way that churches like Redeemer Church look at the world, look at one another, look at their leaders, and actually address the problem of quarreling in the church. Notice from this passage, first of all, that the cross contradicts the wisdom of the world. The cross contradicts the wisdom of the world. Corinth, as you may know, was a very important city with a taste for philosophy and oration. Uh, they loved a good speech. Evidence suggests that wealthy patrons would, have, would, would even support their favorite public speakers financially. So it stands to reason that they were tempted to treat their spiritual leaders the same way. That they listened to Paul or Apollos or Peter the same way that they might hear their favorite philosopher and stand in judgment over them. Like, hey, I like what that guy had to say. He's pretty good. That guy, not so much. They were sort of like what Spurgeon used to call the sermon tasters back in the 19th century. There were people in London who would go hear Mr. Spurgeon, and then they would rush across town, and they would go hear another famous preacher or another famous preacher, and they would get together and compare notes. It wasn't about being the body of Christ or the temple of the Holy Spirit. It was about listening to famous preachers and judging them as a matter of hobby. But what Paul essentially says is that this whole system of human wisdom and treating the gospel and the preaching of the gospel as if it's a system of human wisdom, it's, total, it's a total farce. It's a mirage. In verses 19 and 20, he quotes a passage from Isaiah 29 that illustrates the point. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The prophet centuries before was calling out the proud leaders in Jerusalem. Because of their hypocritical worship. And he says that because they were proud, because they were building their culture on the pride and the priorities of men, that, that uh, even their prophets and their wise men were going to start to sound very foolish because a day was coming in which all the nice things that they were saying about themselves were going to be shown to be untrue. They were going to give way to the judgment of God. And then everybody would see how their so-called wisdom was just made up Bluster. It's easy to see why Paul thought of this passage in Isaiah in connection with the silly wisdom in Corinth. Because the cross was the start of a new era. The Messiah had come. He had died and rose again. All the speculation of pious Jews, all the musings of the intelligent Gentiles had come to nothing and, and, and was shown to be foolish at the cross. It's kind of like how, in, in a sillier way, how many businesses and churches years ago uh, adopted a 2020 vision. You remember that? Uh, by the year 2020, we're going to do A, B, and C, and, and isn't this exciting? And let's uh, celebrate these goals that we have by the year 2020. And then, of course, 2020 came, and it showed that those goals were foolish. Jesus goes to the cross, the Messiah, the Son of God, the perfect one, the sinless one, beaten, dying, dead, and all of the pride and all of the priorities of men are shown to be foolish. This is what the cross does. Because the minute you embrace the cross, 
The minute you really commit to the cross of Christ, you are essentially saying that the wisdom of man is foolish. There is no middle ground. You can't embrace the cross and then turn around and embrace the value system of the world because these two things are absolutely incompatible. I mean, think about it from the perspective of an ancient person. Nowadays, uh, the cross is something that we hang up as a decoration, but back then it was not a decoration. It was a horror. Imagine if you heard your child utter the word cross or crucified. You'd want to wash their mouth out with soap. Don't say that. It's impolite. Crosses lined the roads and dotted the hillsides around every major city, populated with rotting corpses and miserable wretches begging for death. The cross was a curse. It was sickening. Walking past a cross, you would turn your head away in disgust and shame. It was an occasion of merciless mocking for early Christians. Like, your God was hanged on a cross? How foolish can you be? We've made the cross into a token of popular culture, but if you lived back then, you wouldn't have had any trouble imagining why the wise, the mighty, the powerful, the important might blush at the mention of the cross and laugh in scorn at all the people who followed a crucified Messiah. It was ridiculous to the Gentiles. It was a stumbling block to Jews. But to those of us who believe it is the power of God. Let me explain why. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand that it is the curse of the cross. It's the shame of the cross. It's the pain. It's the thing that wants to make us turn away from the cross that makes it so powerful in the life of those who believe. You see, the problem is, it's not just that there's wickedness out there in the world. It's more even than the fact that there's wickedness inside each one of our hearts. No, it goes deeper than that. The problem is that we belong to a humanity that has been under condemnation, under a curse, since long before we were even born. We were born sinners. We were born rebels. And every chance that we've had to make decisions and live a life that disproves that identity, we've gone and we've done the opposite. We have shown ourselves over and over again by the choices that we've made, by the things that we've said, by the way that we relate to other people, that yes, that's exactly what we are. We are sinners, and for that sin, we are under the condemnation of God. You know, we can hide it from ourselves, we can hide it from our neighbors, but we will not hide it from a holy God. He's never going to just pretend like everything's fine. He's too righteous, He's too holy for that. And so when He looks at us and He sees that sin, there is an irreconcilable, unbridgeable gap there that we cannot fix for ourselves. But then God sends a man who can represent us. Jesus, the Son of God. When he was tested, he didn't fail. He didn't sin. And it, and it was this perfect, sinless man, the perfect image of the eternal God that laid down his life and took all the curse, all of the condemnation for all of our sin, and he, he, he bore it in his own body on the cross so that when he said, it is finished, hanging on that cruel cross, the price had been completely paid, the cup of God's wrath was drunk to the dregs, and, and the punishment that was stored up for us was completely, totally exhausted in him. That 
is the power of God. That is the glory of God. That's why when we look at the cross, we say, that's our glory. And I'm sure you can see how that impacts quarreling Christians. Why do we have divisions? Why do we have fighting and factions in the churches? Because we, we, we do this because we become more enamored with the teachings of the world than we do with the cross of Christ. With the wisdom of the world than the cross of Christ. With the glory, the status symbols of the world than we do with the cross of Jesus Christ. When we forget the cross, it makes us forget who our brothers and sisters are in Christ. First reality, the cross contradicts the wisdom of the world. Second reality, notice that the cross crucifies human boasting. The cross crucifies human boasting. In verse 26, Paul says to the Corinthian believers, consider your calling. In other words, he's saying, look, remember who you are. Look at your own resume. Most of you are not practicing your short game in the C-suite. You're not driving around in the back of a limo. They, they haven't retired your jersey in the basketball arena in the city. You don't have any hit singles on the billboard charts. You're all just normal people. In fact, a lot of you are just rubes. Poor folks. If the value system of the world, the one that you're allowing to infiltrate your church and divide you up into factions is so trustworthy, then why is it that the God of the universe is building a church, His own temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, with blockheads like you? Well, it's very simple, right? He goes on to say, why does He do it? Why does God build His church this way? To shame the wise. To shame the strong. To bring to nothing the things that are. In other words, to expose the emptiness of worldly glory. To sort of show that the emperor doesn't have any clothes. See, the entire Corinthian culture was built on boasting. If you read first and, excuse me, first and second Corinthians, Paul is constantly talking about boasting. Uh, this is what all the important people were doing. They would build a, a bathhouse or a bridge, and they would slap their name on the side of that structure so everyone knew who built that structure, who paid for it. Boast. They would drop a few dollars in the hat of the most engaging public speaker and wait for that man to speak favorably of them. Boast by proxy. In fact, some scholars speculate with good reason that this is why when ministering in the city of Corinth, Paul chose to support himself rather than rely on the generosity of the local church like he did in other places. Why is that? Because Paul wanted to, he wanted to live in opposition to the culture of Corinth and he wanted everybody to know that he wasn't in anyone's pocket. So here he is, he's refusing to play the game, preaching about a crucified king, all the uneducated, all the misfits, the slaves, the poor, form a church, and then that church begins to turn the heads of the people in the world. Not because they're so impressive, but because they love each other. But because of their holy life. And what that does is that takes the culture of human boasting there in the city of Corinth, the culture of human boasting in the, in the society in which we live, and it deflates the whole balloon. It just shows it to be completely empty. 
But why does God set it up this way? Because he is jealous for his own glory. It's kind of like the passage that we read together a few moments ago. You remember Gideon in the book of Judges, chapter 7? Gideon is, uh, and all the people of Israel, they're being oppressed by the Midianites. Gideon is terrified. He's a coward. He's not a, uh, an impressive leader. He's a nobody. God's going to get the glory, not some muscle-bound superhero. And then Gideon, this unlikely leader, gathers an army, and it's all these men, and, and God says, wait, wait a second, that army is way too big. So they send all the people home who aren't sure, and then God said, the army's still too big. They end up with 300 men. And why does he do that? Because God doesn't want anyone in the world, including us, to think that God, that, 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 that the Israelites were saved by a heroic army. They want every, God wants everyone to know that it was He who saved them. God says, I'm going to remove every reason you have to boast. I'm going to get the glory. Friends, let's remember, it's not our smarts, not our righteousness, not our money, not our education, not our beauty that brought us into the kingdom of God. You know what we brought to the table? You know what we brought to God when we came into the kingdom of God? Nothing but our sin. Nothing but our need of rescue. That's it. That's our one contribution. So we have absolutely no reason to boast in the presence of the Almighty. And we'd better learn that now. Much better, isn't it, to humble ourselves today than to be humbled tomorrow. But the minute we remember the cross, that my sin is so offensive to God that I could never have saved myself, that the very reasons I have to boast, listen to this, the very reasons that we have to boast, all those accomplishments, all of our righteousness, those end up being the very things that, that almost keep us from the kingdom itself. We have no reason to boast whatsoever. So take this back to the disunity we experience in the local church. Why do we have quarreling? Why do we have factions? Why do we have fighting? It's because we're proud. Right? It's because we want to have something to boast about. It's because of pride. We want to have something to boast. We don't like that that other person made us look anything less than glorious. And so we fight with them. It's because we've forgotten one of the lessons of the cross. That we have no grounds on which to boast. Nothing anybody can say about us, whether it's true or not, comes even close to the pride-killing reality that the Son of God had to lay down His life or we could not be saved. The same is true with your favorite leaders or preachers. They're wonderful people, I'm sure, but their sins are nailed to the cross as well. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Who is your favorite teacher? Who is your favorite preacher? Sinners destined for wrath but rescued through the death of Jesus Christ. When we allow the cross to shape the culture of the church, when it really sinks in that we are saved through the cross work of Christ, human boasting itself is crucified. The cross contradicts human wisdom. The cross crucifies human boasting. Thirdly, notice from verses 30 and 31. The cross connects us to King Jesus. The cross connects us to King Jesus. 
If you have a cross hanging around your neck or fixed to the wall of your house, I hope this is why. Not because it's a fancy decoration, uh, not because of its beauty, but because it's your glory, because of what it does for you, because the cross connects you to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 30. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There's a clear allusion here to the 23rd chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah. The prophet had promised long ago that God's king is going to come. He's going to shepherd his people wisely and righteously, and not one of them is going to be lost. You want real wisdom. You want real righteousness. You want to be sanctified. You want to be set apart for Christ. There's only one way that that can happen. That's if you are connected, if you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the thing that connects us to Jesus Christ? It's the cross. You see, Paul isn't saying that the Corinthians should be totally avoiding boasting. He isn't saying that they need to be ashamed. He's saying just stop boasting in yourselves. Stop boasting in man. Start boasting in Christ. Do you see why quarreling Christians need the cross? Because it reminds us that that person we're quarreling with is set apart by God for the Savior. That they have Christ. Don't you think that that should change the way that we feel toward one another? Don't you think that that should change the way we talk to one another? Don't you think it should change the way we talk about one another? That this person in my church family is in Christ. That means if I slander them, yes, I'm slandering Christ. I better watch what I say. How can I build a whole identity on my favorite teacher or my favorite preacher or my profession or on my economic situation or on my political views when the cross has brought me into utter union with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the Son of God? That identity supersedes all the others. You want to know why we have disunity in the church? It might be because we're finding our identity in something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. What what is Redeemer Church known for? You know, I, I don't really know. I don't live in this community. That's the church where all the smart people go. That's the church where they uh, homeschool their children or they have their kids in Christian school or everybody sends their kids to public school. That's the church where everybody likes to hunt or fish. That's the church with the cool band. You know, whatever it is. Obviously, you can't control what other people think about you in the community, but wouldn't it be wonderful, wouldn't it be best if Redeemer Church were known not for the ways that this church is distinct from all the other believers in the city, but for how the members of this church are just so grateful to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Like those people in that church, they just seem to never get over the fact that they are in Christ. When people think of this church, they tend to stop thinking of this church and start thinking of how wonderful Jesus is. Isn't that what we want? The cross does that. Quarreling Christians need the cross because it is the very thing that unites us to the most wonderful person in the entire universe. When we're enamored with the wisdom of man, 
when we try to heap up all these reasons to boast in ourselves or in our leaders, when we find our identity in something other than the Lord Jesus Christ, that leads to all sorts of division in the church. But the cross destroys all of that. It contradicts human wisdom. It crucifies human boasting. It connects us to King Jesus. And that leads Paul to a very logical inference. Uh, We've seen the patient's symptom and a powerful solution. But thirdly, consider with me a plain strategy. A plain strategy. Uh, In light of everything that we've just considered, Paul's statement at the beginning of chapter 2 just makes sense. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What's your ministry strategy, Paul? Like, what are the ten steps that you use to plan a church? What, what, What are you doing? What's your ministry strategy? He says, I proclaim Christ and Him crucified. What? That's it? Wait a second, isn't that offensive to the Gentiles? Isn't that offensive to the Jews as well? What kind of a strategy is that? He says, I I know, I know that that's offensive, but the minute I begin to wander away from the cross, something happens. I start to get enamored with the wisdom of the world. I start to find something to boast in in myself. I start to find my identity in something other than Jesus. So I'm going to have a very simple, very purposeful strategy in ministry. I'm going to go back constantly, all the time, to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. You know, we so easily lose sight of the central, simple power of the cross. It always grieves me when engaging with believers. I I do membership interviews. I talk with people about their faith all the time. It's a wonderful privilege. But it grieves me how often professing Christians will talk about how they prayed a prayer when they were young. Or how they went to camp and this preacher was just so engaging. Or how somebody came alongside them in life and, and kind of led them to a place of faith. Or how they responded to a sermon. Or how their relative was a good example of faith. Or a hundred other things, but then say nothing about the cross. We've gotten off track if that's the case. Is it possible that we might be taking the cross for granted? Is it possible that we grow bored with the cross? That we read the New Testament, which is all about Christ and Him crucified, and we come away with a to-do list. We read the Old Testament, which is all about Christ and Him crucified, and we come away with these character traits, examples of courage or self-control. We come to a worship service, and I get upset if, if, I, if we didn't sing the kind of music that I wanted to sing, but I don't even notice if the preacher mentioned Christ and Him crucified. We've got our priorities out of whack, if that's the case. You say, Jake, there's other stuff besides that in the Bible, but friend, Paul is saying he always brought it back to the cross. Always. He couldn't help it because the cross of Christ had changed him. You know, I, I don't tend to feel a lot of regret after I preach. Maybe I should feel it more often. I don't know. The only time, though, in all seriousness, when I genuinely feel regret after preaching the Word of God is when I feel I wish I would have emphasized the cross 
a little bit more. We need to come back to Christ crucified. When you, when you and your spouse are fighting, I guarantee it will help you to go back to the reality of Christ crucified. It will change that conversation very quickly. When you don't know what to do about the kid's behavior, it will help you to go back to Christ and Him crucified. When you're not seeing eye to eye with the leaders of your church, it will help you to go back to Christ and Him crucified. You say, I'm lost. I don't know what to do. We have this controversy. We have these divisions in the church. Where do we go? Okay, take a breath. Go back to the cross. It will help. Not a single thing on the church calendar, not a penny from the church bank account should be devoted to anything that you cannot tie back to the cross. Because it's everything. It is the hinge pin of history. It is the death of death. It is the killing of sin. It is the breaking down of the wall of separation between you and your neighbor. It is the power of God. Now, I realize that there may be some people in this room who right now are hearing what I'm saying and you're thinking, you know, that's kind of foolish. That's foolishness. First of all, we're all glad you're here. And it's completely appropriate to have questions. It's normal to have confusion and uncertainty. But let me just suggest to you that the reason that you think that the cross of Christ is foolishness may be because the the, the lenses that you're using to evaluate all of this, they are totally skewed themselves. And you cannot see unless someone gives you new lenses. Like maybe the claims of Christ are not the problem. Maybe it's the Value system that you're using to evaluate the claims of Christ. Instead of crossing your arms and saying to God, prove it. How about opening your hands and asking, show me. I need a Savior. I need to stop boasting in myself. I I need to stop being enamored with the wisdom of the world. I need to stop finding my identity in all these various things that aren't going to last and aren't going to satisfy me. I need something else. Maybe I need the crucified Savior. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you. He'll bring you to a place of understanding. You see, quarreling Christians need the cross. And the fact of the matter is, so do you. Would you pray with me? Father, as we take a moment to respond to Your Word, we confess that we have spent so much of of our week building our own identity, our own kingdom, our own occasions to boast in ourselves. And we've neglected the cross. and, And so we just ask that you would forgive us. We come to you confidently knowing that this is one of the reasons for which Jesus died. Father, we ask for the cleansing power of the cross. We ask for the unifying power of the cross. We ask that we would leave here more focused, more grateful for what Christ has done in being nailed to that tree. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.